Welcome to Season of the Bitch. I hate everyone and everything. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> Today, we have Kellen, Ambria, Laura, and Lindsay. Today, we are here to talk about this fucking tax bill because, wow, let's face it, there's really not much else we can talk about right now. As you smart listeners are most likely aware, there are two garbage fire tax bills going on in the Senate and the House right now. And as soon as they get their language to match, it will be voted on. And with almost 100% certainty, it will pass. I mean, yeah, call your representatives and be like, this is a garbage fire hellhole. How dare you? But if you've listened to the last episode, you know that I've lost faith in the sham of democracy that is the United States. And I would say also prepare for the possibility that this will pass and what we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to pass. I've, I've heard some people being like, oh, you know, there's still a chance. You know, people, people, smart people have looked at how it's shaking down. The votes, you know, people have claimed, you know, who's going to vote for it and against it and it's going to pass. These bills are talked about as tax cuts. And it's very true that they create tax cuts for the wealthiest people and corporations, but for everyone else, these bills increase taxes. Mm-hmm. So if somebody out there is talking to you about how this is going to be tax cuts for everyone, you need to ask them who is getting their taxes cut. Because if they look that up, they will see that these bills increase taxes more than ever in the history of our country. Um, the New York Times noted that in 2027, people making between forty dollars and $50,000 a year will, under these plans, see a combined increase of $5.3 billion in taxes, while anyone earning more than a million will have their taxes collectively cut by $5.8 billion per year. Those mm-hmm. numbers are pretty similar, aren't they? Like straight <laughs> so up they're literally taking... What was that? Oh, straight up wealth redistribution, like direct line. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. They're literally taking the money away from the poor and giving it to the rich under this mm-hmm. plan. And then also, you know, adding $500 million to the deficit each year. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought that we could start by breaking down why this is even happening. And in particular, I wanted to start with a little bit of recent history on the terrible tax bills that have been pushed through. So particularly in times of crisis, um, these things happen. They happen and they kind of overwhelm our senses. And the brilliant Naomi Klein has called this the shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. I call it business as usual under a capitalistic regime. And much about what I'm going to say in the upcoming areas come from a Vox writer, David Roberts, who had a tweet storm on this topic and a Jacobin article by Kate Aronoff. And maybe we can say really quickly, we're going to be talking about government spending a lot um, while we talk about tax bills that have come before and the ones that are happening now. What is government spending? There's kind of two major types. There's government investment, which is infrastructure like bridges and dams and roads. And then there's also spending on research that's considered investment. That's like scientific or medical research or maybe even, you know, technological research. But there's also something called transfer payment spending, such as giving people their social security. It's technically, you know, spending, but the money is just being transferred because people were already paying into social security. Maybe others have something to add about what is included in the term, but I mean, it's incredibly broad. It's basically anything that the government does. So, you know. Totally. The military, like literally 
there's so much there and so uh, yeah so to say like we want to cut spending cut spending cut spending of the government i mean you're basically you're getting rid of most of what the government does right right which i think some people are very okay with but it's important to be Mm -hmm. clear exactly what those consequences are well it would be nice if it also means that they're not the people making all the financial decisions about the country and all the military decisions about the country, like, it's stripped of yeah. absolutely any, like, good function that it can have and uh, is just, like, a police state. <laughs> so, obviously, as socialists, we don't actually have a problem with government spending, generally speaking. Uh, but when that spending is primarily on things like maintaining our global hegemony and not on making sure that everybody has a right to housing and health care and uh, food. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do have a problem with the allocation of funds. And, you know, with these tax cuts, we are clearly not making any, any cuts on defense spending. And we're, as you will hear later in the episode, as we'll discuss, uh, we're clearly not going to be allocating any more money uh, toward health care and other basic human necessities. So Totally. Yeah. Generally, I support paying taxes, but as a poor person, um, I'm kind of pissed off that I'm going to be paying more and uh, people who are never going to have to work a day in their life will be paying way, way less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Bill Clinton came out of the gate swinging against government spending in 1993 with his Deficit Reduction Act, following it up with the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. An archived summation of the Clinton White House accomplishments notes how he put America's fiscal house in order and carried out the lowest level of government spending since 1966. Yes, this uh, this discussion combines two of my favorite things, which are history and uh, hating on the Clintons. Um, Yes. (laughs) So to carry on with that note, uh, the Clintons. You know, they were terrible, or Bill Clinton, I guess, mainly it's the the blame for this because he is really important in explaining how we got to the place that we are in terms of neoliberal austerity measures that we're faced with today that these tax, quote unquote, cuts are building on. But also, as usual, the terribleness did not begin with them. After an era where big government was cool, Reagan stepped in and really kicked off the modern period of austerity. I don't want to go into this too much because literally everyone listening to our show hates Reagan. So, like, why would I bother? But it is sort of worth contextualizing him um, and the supply side economics that he popularized. So the Great Depression, I think, is a good place to start because it fundamentally changed American politics. FDR, quote unquote, saved capitalism, which like, <laughs> thanks, pal, by implementing a ton of reforms, <laughs> um, creating oversight that had never really existed before, and installing many of the nation's most important social safety nets like Social Security. It should be noted that much that in much of this, he had to be pushed to the left by the likes of Huey Long, who was somebody that I think is super interesting. He was a governor of Louisiana who was into stuff like housing is a fundamental right and equal access to transportation and free education, even though he wouldn't have put it in quite those terms. Um, And though he was assassinated in 1935 and so never like threatened FDR's hold on the the presidency, um, although he was planning on it, we are still fighting for that exact same shit today. It's unbelievable. Anyway, 
I think a lot of people would say that FDR didn't go far enough, that his reforms were good, but had they gone farther, we might have moved in the direction of social democracy that the Nordic countries took after World War II. And certainly, he was really bad on racism in a whole host of ways, including sort of the inherent unfairness of the way that the New Deal was meted out, which we've talked about on a previous episode. But at the same time, there was this mass expansion in what Americans expected the government to do, which was so important. I would say that the Depression and World War II era is second only to the Civil War and Reconstruction and shifting the dialogue on the role of government in American life. So it's it's really it's really important for that. And in this case, there was now an expectation that the United States would do something to provide for the people who were facing hard times, again, even if it didn't go as far as it should. Uh, I think the Depression really made clear to a lot of people that poverty is not a moral failing because so many people who would be considered quote-unquote good Americans at the time ended up being desperately poor because of sort of the ravages of capitalism at that point. And so I don't want to overstate things, but coming out of that, there was something of a consensus. Eisenhower was the first Republican president after FDR, and he kept the social safety net system intact for the most part. And while Johnson, LBJ, was awful on a lot of things like Vietnam, and he was also just kind of an asshole, he made an effort with his war on poverty to expand the system that FDR had put into place. And like during this time, there were definitely reactionaries. I don't want to say that everybody agreed on everything. Um, And also there's like the whole simmering undercurrent of like terrible racism in the civil rights movement. But yeah, there were and there were definitely reactionaries in terms of just sort of like the the social safety net system, like Goldwater, who's somebody that Reagan really admires and whom a young Hillary Clinton actually campaigned for. But somebody like Richard Nixon would honestly have been home in the modern Democratic Party. Like if you look at his platform in 1968, it's really not that far off from like Obama's 2008 platform. It's like it's unbelievable. Right. He wanted like universal health care or something approaching it. He was really instrumental in creating the EPA. And, you know, he was like a piece of shit in a lot of ways. And again, sort of like rolled back a lot of the early civil rights protections. But it was really like Reagan where austerity started. And he and his boys were like so convinced that lowering the wealthiest taxes would boost the economy and trickle down to everybody else. But it's just literally never worked out that way, which sort of leads me to like my inevitable but not at all original conclusion that it's this tax cut again, tax cut, as Ambria said, not really being accurate. It's not really about benefiting the little guy in any way, shape, or form. And it's literally just a disgusting wealth redistribution to the already mega rich. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so then we, you know, we talk about Clinton. Clinton, essentially a Republican in sheep's clothing. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, George W. Bush and the GOP put together an economic stimulus bill in response. It was a huge tax giveaway to the rich. So grotesque a giveaway to the rich that even the Wall Street Journal acknowledged as much. Paul Krugman wrote, It was so extreme that when the political consultants tried to get reactions from voter focus groups, the voters refused to believe that they were describing the bill accurately. Voters refused to believe it. Now, fast forward to 2012 and the Romney-Ryan tax plan, 
which would have slashed social spending to pay for giant tax cuts for the rich. Priorities USA, a Democratic super PAC, ran focus groups on it. And here's what happened. When Priorities informed a focus group that Romney supported the Ryan budget plan and thus championed ending Medicare as we know it while also advocating tax cuts, tax cuts for the wealthiest, wealthiest Americans, the respondents simply refused to believe any politician would do such a thing. Yeah. Again, when economic policy is accurately explain, explained to the voters, they simply cannot believe it's true. So when the voters are confronted by the idea that the government wants to take from the poor and sick to fund the tax cuts for the rich, it's literally unbelievable. Now, I don't actually care about the Democratic Party, but they at least pretend in, on some level to care about poor people. So it's mildly a step in the right direction. David Roberts writes, the GOP do their deeds right out in the open, trusting accurately that a good chunk of the public won't believe it is what it is. Journalists understand the model of finding and exposing hidden information, the pre-internet age core of journalism, but they have not yet solved the dilemma of how to help the public focus on and understand already public information that is surrounded by a fog of misinformation, bullshit, and distraction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's super intense and frustrating because it's like we have the information. We just need to be able to convince people that it's real because there's so much misinformation and distraction. Mm -hmm. So then there's this ludicrous tax bill. Um, it's a real time taste test. Uh, test case, sorry. <laughs> taste test, taste test, taste it out. Um, Gotta taste that bill. Taste that yes. tax bill. Mm. Yes. Can it the tastes media awful. It tastes really bad. Um, can, it's You'll get fire dookies 100% from it. Um, can the media convey that it is really as cruel and plutocratic as as democratic critics are saying it is can they convey that the gop has become something more unhinged and venal than even its worst critics charge i doubt it i'm not even sure that there's any economic policy that could break through remember respondents simply refuse to believe that any politician would do such a thing and that's how they get away with it the obvious problem with David's critique, of course, is that Democrats have been doing the same shit, too. It's just under a different guise, like national security or law and order or some other bullshit that is generally racist and xenophobic. Yeah, to, to just jump in here real quick, I think that that's, that's really important because part of the problem, part of why it's so hard for people to believe that, like, quote unquote, somebody, you know, a politician would really do that is that there's still this idea of bipartisanship that Democrats are clinging on to. And even in mm -hmm. the face of overwhelming evidence, they keep perpetuating this idea that the other side really has everybody's best interest in mind, too, and that it's just sort of a disagreement on the best way to get where we all want to go. And right. that's really harmful because the Republican Party at this point just, again, stands for redistribution, upward redistribution of wealth. And in some ways, the Democratic Party isn't that different. And I think that as long as, you know, if, if there's anybody in the party that is actually committed to social programs, to helping the poor, if that's more than just a bumper sticker statement, 
then Mm -hmm. they have to be willing to call out what's actually happening. But under this guise of civility that the Democrats are continuing to cling to, which doesn't help anybody except for the Republicans, it's impossible to point out that, you know, this bill is literally going to kill people and the Republican backers do not care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our, our political system has this incredibly harmful impact and and the way our media works too on how the public digests information because all critique comes from the opposing side as an attack and then the side maybe that you identify with more just defends itself and if possible it's never going to address the most glaring critiques you know if you look at the news cycle on like a conservative station versus the news cycle on a liberal station um you know a lot of the critiques that may be legitimate coming from either side or never addressed, you know, so if you're a conservative, you're just usually going to be watching the conservative news cycle and maybe never even hear news stories that are critical. Yeah. And I, I also don't think it's really as simple as if the constituents only knew the truth, this wouldn't be happening because we've kind of found out that that's not really the case. But he definitely has a point. This this has happened before. And part of how it was stopped was getting the actual information out to people. However, I do think under Trump, there is a much larger mistrust that is embodied in particular by poor working class men. Or white working class men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. Mistrust of anything that the media or other people with different opinions say to them. Trump has them thinking that anything said other than an official Trump statement could be a lie and should be treated with skepticism. I also want to say, I'm sorry, middle middle class white men, I think, are huge. Oh, totally. You know. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's this, it's like the, the, the like embodiment of MAGA hat wearing people who are like super stoked about all this stuff. Robert Reich, who's a pretty popularized economist and has worked on different presidential campaigns and, and supported Bernie Sanders. He also writes about how. He was also Clinton's labor secretary. Yes. Right. He also writes about how GOP pieces of shit are actually admitting why they are pushing this through. He writes that the reason Republicans give for enacting the plan is supply side trickle down nonsense. But the real reason is payback to the GOP's mega donors. A few Republicans are actually starting to admit this. Two weeks ago, Gary Cohn. Uh, Trump's lead economic advisor conceded in an interview that the most excited group out there are big CEOs about the tax plan. Republican Representative Chris Collins, who is the fucking worst and is adjacent to my district, (laughs) admitted that, quote, my donors are basically saying, get it done or don't ever call me again. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham warned that if Republicans failed to pass tax reform, Quote, the financial contributions will stop, unquote. So is that not admitting to taking bribes? Because it sounds exactly like admitting to taking bribes, which isn't news. But it's like the impunity of it is just so striking to me. Right. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's just funny to me because it's like, it's not even like he admitted to anything illegal. Our system is just literally set up to make this possible. Especially after the Citizens United ruling. Like, this is just our reality now. We are Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. truly living in the worst possible timeline. And with, you know, representatives who make statements like that publicly, it really is 
very disheartening and it's very discouraging to constituents because if who they're really listening to, whose, you know, interests they're actually concerned with are the donors, are they really listening to phone calls from their constituents? Like, do they actually right, give right, any right. credence to what the people who got them elected want and, you know, need? Um, right. And I, I think, like, they're suggesting that the corporations are what actually got them elected and not people, which probably disgusting. is fucking true, which is disgusting. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like, it's also just democracy is a sham. True. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Republican megadonors view the tax payback as they do any other investment. When they bankrolled Trump and the GOP, they expected a good return. So here's just another fucking example of the kleptocracy that is the United States. The elected officials are openly admitting to bowing down to their corporate donors. Fuck them, um, fuck them, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> garbage, garbage fire. And finally, I wanted to clarify something about deficit spending. My partner, Mike, who happens to be a badass, brilliant Marxist economics graduate student at one of the only heterodox economics programs in the country, ooh, ooh, uh, <laughs> he gave us this introduction slash explainer of deficit spending because he's explained it to me before. And when I started reading these takes on what had happened, like even in Jacobin, they were like, oh, but we're really nervous about deficit spending. And I was like, I don't actually, I remember... When Mike was telling me one time, like that, that isn't isn't actually an issue. So uh, I asked him to kind of write something up for us, and he said both Democrats and Republicans tout the idea that deficit spending is either a crisis, as in the case with Republicans, or a temporary necessary evil in times of economic downturn, which is the Democrats. They base this on the false premise that the government is run like a business or household. Spend more money than you have, and you'll go into debt and face all the related negative consequences. This cannot be farther from the truth. The federal government has what is called a fiat monetary system, where money is created out of thin air and inflation is controlled by taxation and, and interest rates. With the correct fiscal policy, the government can deficit spend indefinitely with next to no negative ramifications. Being the two parties of capital, the Democrats and Republicans use deficit hawkishness as an ideological tool to advance the interests of their donors. So it comes as no surprise that the Republicans are now using the size of the deficit exacerbated by their tax bill as a pretext for slashing funding to Medicaid and Social Security. In spite of this, both parties seem to forget that they care about deficits when it comes to our imperialistic foreign policy. George W. Bush and Barack Obama ran some of the largest deficits in the history of the United States to fund incredibly expensive, not to mention catastrophic, wars and foreign occupations. If only they felt the same economic amnesia when it comes to providing basic necessities to the millions of Americans living in poverty. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ugh, Mike is killing it. Sorry you can't come on Season of the Bee because you're a dude, Mike, but thank you for letting us use your words. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I wanted to add here is that like once this tax bill actually passes, we're obviously going to go further into debt. Our national deficit will get even bigger as a direct result of these tax cuts. But when our deficit balloons, it becomes an excuse to cut more social services mm, under mm. the guise that we can't afford them. So not only are we cutting social spending right now under these bills to quote unquote pay for the bill, 
We are also putting ourselves in a position where a couple of years down the line, Republicans can point at this deficit jump that they created and use it as an excuse to further decimate what little remains of the welfare welfare state. It's unbelievable. And like the worst thing is that, you know, the Democrats are going to acquiesce because they're already playing the game within the Republican framework. They've bought into this idea, like Mike said. That, like, the deficit matters on some level instead of being a totally arbitrary concept based on, like, a whole host of other arbitrary concepts like debt and currency. But, like, without getting too meta, of course we can afford to provide for every member of our society. There are more empty homes in America than there are homeless people. We could send every kid to school for free for the price of, like, a couple of warplanes. But we don't. And that's an active choice our government is making, not like this issue of what we can and cannot afford. Uh. So (laughs) we're going to take a music break. And then after that, we're going to dive into all of the wonderful nitty. Well, not all of them, because there's a lot of them, but some of the nitty gritty uh, ways that we get fucked by this tax bill. Yes. And not in a good way. No. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying, Laura. (laughs) You're welcome. Enjoy the music. It's not making love to candles with a loving and supportive person. Exactly.
All right, so we're just going to jump into the things we hate about this tax bill, which is pretty much everything. There's no redeeming qualities. Spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> so first of all, it gives American corporations a $2 trillion tax break. Just let that sink in for a second. $2 trillion tax break. And this is at a time when they're enjoying record profits and stashing unprecedented amounts of cash in offshore tax shelters. So anyone who's like claiming like nationalism and go America, like literally this tax plan puts more money outside of the government and outside of the United States than before. It now gives America's wealthiest citizens trillions more when the richest 1% now hold a record 38.6% of the nation's total wealth, up from 33.7% just a decade ago. And even speaking of no redeeming qualities, even the even the one of the few ways that they claim that they're raising taxes for the rich or getting more tax money from the rich is by offering these super low uh, repatriation tax rates, which means, you know, if money is stored overseas and we're going to bring it back into the United States, they're like, oh, there's like a fire sale on like, you know, what kind of rates you're going to have to pay to try to like bring that money back into the United mm-hmm. States. But that actually like loses us money by making that process cheaper. But then they're claiming that that money is like money that we're getting, if that makes any sense. And so just to go into like more ways that this like two trillion dollar tax break is breaking down it gets rid of the the estate tax um, which Mm -hmm. is a tax that's only paid if you're inheriting more than 11 million dollars and that's like a 150 billion dollars of the deal uh and it i mean 150 (laughs) billion dollars in this tax deal is not even like a big like i don't even understand these numbers i I don't understand and that's just like a tiny part of the two trillion you know um it's even going to raise the threshold on tax credits that are intended for low-income people so that wealthy people can claim them too Uh, lol that's another 200 billion it gets rid of the personal exemption that everyone gets on their taxes i don't i don't really even totally understand like like the actual impact that has like when i do my taxes Uh, But I read something that said that, you know, ordinary people like me are going to be hit much harder by it than wealthy Mm. people, because I think the cost is kind of going to be the same for everyone. And, you know, the same cost is going to be harder for me than it is for someone wealthy. So there's also some business with state and local deductions. Uh, Apparently, it works as a subsidy for spending on schools, roads, police departments, etc. It's called SALT, like capital S-A-L-T. S-A-L-T, SALT. Removing this deduction called SALT will pressure cities and states to cut spending, which is someone who lives in fucking Illinois just absolutely (laughs) terrifies me. I don't know if you've heard about fucking Illinois, uh, but Google it if if you want to know about austerity. From the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, they said this about the SALT deduction. Um, It helps state and local governments fund public services that provide widely shared benefits. That's because with this deduction, higher income filers are more willing to support state and local taxes because they can write it off. Repealing the deduction would almost certainly make it harder for states and localities, many of which already face serious budget strains, to raise sufficient revenues in the coming years to fund K-12 and higher education, health care, and other services. To balance their budgets with insufficient revenue, state policymakers would likely make cuts in such services that would be widely felt. 
States and localities could also respond by raising taxes or fees that fall less heavily on the higher income residents most affected by the deductions loss. That would push more costs to middle and low income people and make state and local tax systems even more regressive overall than they already are. Further, the proposal to end the SALT deduction and thereby make it harder for states and localities to fund current programs comes as the president and congressional Republicans proposed in their 10-year budget plans to shift substantial new costs to states by sharply cutting Medicaid and other health funding and potentially cutting federal support for state and local uh. services such as education, transportation, environmental protection, and low-income housing. Uh. Um, so that's like a double whammy, right? Like, not only do you take away a major uh, source of revenue for state and localities, you at the same time make them responsible for much more of their own funding. This tax bill even ends the credit for testing for cures for rare diseases. Um, no. Can we just all no. take a moment to have a big what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? And there's way more and literally too much to say. Uh, there's also all kinds of stuff about tax cuts that are in there just to directly benefit the friends and family of certain senators that have, you know, major connections to, like, uh, beer companies and shit like Miller. I recommend mm -hmm. going to The Intercept uh, and just searching taxes if you want to read some more. They have several several very informative articles, and they also link to other really helpful sources. One thing that stood out to me about the tax bill, I'm not at all surprised by it, of course, because uh, the GOP tends to sneak this into everything they do, is uh, fetal personhood language. Mm. Ew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so basically, in the context of, like, allowing for some kind of deduction for, I don't know, like claiming dependents or tuition savings accounts or something. They have now expanded that to allow those deductions to apply to unborn children. And um, <sighs> of course, they decided to define unborn children, indicating that life begins at conception, which is right. both contextually inappropriate and <laughs> medically inaccurate. Right. Anti-abortion groups want to enshrine into law that a fertilized egg, embryo, or fetus is a person with full rights and liberties because they believe that will help to eventually outlaw abortion. Personhood legislation, laws saying that life begins at conception, typically has a tough time passing when it's put to a vote because it has the potential to outlaw abortion in the most extreme cases, including rape, incest, a threat to the pregnant woman's health or life, and even outlaw many popular forms of birth control. It's also not particularly tenable given the realities of reproduction. There's a reason that people are invested with their rights under the law when they're born. Under embryotic and fetal personhood laws, would every fertilized egg get a social security number? What about the more than half of fertilized eggs that don't implant? Would our infant mortality rate just go up to more than 50%? Yeah, just to be clear here, what Laura's talking about, for people that are not super familiar with, like, ovaries and how they work, people, technically, if your definition of pregnancy is just an egg being fertilized, there's people who have wombs and are, like, having sex with people who have sperm are getting pregnant way more often than they realize because very frequently just as often as an egg like implants within a womb 
it doesn't. It like it gets right. fertilized and then gets like effectively washed out with your next period, which is again like something that a lot of people are not aware of. So there's a good chance maybe somebody listening to this, you've been pregnant and you didn't even know it and it didn't actually matter because nothing ever happened and the embryo didn't grow. But technically under this law, you had a person inside you. Yeah, I think right, medically exactly. speaking, pregnancy begins at implantation, which is when the fertilized egg implants in the uterus. But yeah, before that, like it's just it's two cells. Like, it's literally just two cells, and something may or may not come of it. Right. So instead of having to debate what is plainly terrible and bad, uh, (laughs) Republicans gave their far-right base the gift of laying some of the legal groundwork for really ridiculous encroachments on abortion rights. Yeah, um, and in this tax bill, the fetal personhood definition isn't even effective in any way. Um, because you can't tell you're pregnant at the time of conception. Um, and I assume the GOP is <laughs> is not condoning claiming a new dependent every time somebody's sperm reaches somebody else's egg. Because, like, if you're having unprotected sex, then you could probably, like, claim a new dependent every time you have unprotected sex. Totally. Um, yeah, which, well, if it gives me more tax deductions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Um, so, basically, this phrasing serves the exclusive purpose of establishing a legal definition for when life begins to ultimately limit reproductive control. I'm literally puking. Well, not literally, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, have we figured out exactly why they want to get rid of abortion so bad? I don't, I don't believe it's a moral issue. I feel like I have theories, but I, I don't know. Maybe this is something we can try to figure out. I think Season of the yeah, Bitch should crack this. Like, what's the economic plan? What what right. part does abortion play in the economic plan of the GOP? Because I think getting rid of a, abortion and birth control, there's something to that. We talked Well, to- we should have a whole episode about this, but it's essentially like in the 1950s when Under God was put into... The same time that Under God was put into the Pledge of Allegiance, like... Most most churches at that time were advocating for abortion rights because they were nervous about the safety of women. Um, and without getting into it too much, because I do think this could be its own episode, there were corporate interests on the right that co-opted churches by like essentially funding them through the roof. And so the right took over what religious morality meant. To gain more votes because the in the that at that time no one was paying attention to Republicans and they used it as a way to like gather much more of of a base for themselves and it's worked it's worked ever fucking since I also mm-hmm. think to think about like why it's important like from a material standpoint outside sort of the culture wars aspect we I think we touched about on this a little bit when we were talking about Federici in the first episode like women by a lot you know people who are biologically childbearing as like a means to produce more labor power and the importance of that for fueling a capitalist economy but i agree that this is something we should maybe dive into in more depth yeah i mean that's what confuses me about it uh is because i think you know during the times of mercantilism and all that stuff 
you know, it was widely accepted that the more people you have to work in your workforce, the more the more money your nation is going to have, the wealthier your nation is going to be. But that theory is no longer the standard. So right. it's no longer the standard, I, I don't think, unless I'm understanding it wrong, which is why I'm curious about exploring it further. Yeah, I think that part of it is that you there there needs to be like a permanent underclass, a permanent unemployed sector, you know, to keep the price of labor down to encourage wage depression, that kind of thing. Um, and especially if you're not that concerned about, you know, feeding people who are at the bottom of the social structure, if you have a system in which prisons are privatized and can actually make a profit off of taking in sort of a criminalized underclass, then birth control and abortion and all of that are unnecessary and, in fact, uh, may be counterproductive. I also, as a former, like, evangelical Christian conservative, am aware that there are people who are pro-life or anti-choice for moral reasons. Like, they believe that the unborn are, like, the most vulnerable among us and that it's, I don't know, it's immoral to to harm people in such a vulnerable position. Uh, I use the term people lightly. But I also think that a lot of it has to do with maintaining like traditional family dynamics mm-hmm. and yeah. specifically like keeping men in a position of power because if women are pregnant like or I mean if people who can who get pregnant have to take some time off of work, they have to I don't know, they they have I would say greater needs than people who are not actively pregnant have and so it, it kind of, in their traditional family role, makes men feel more powerful and more necessary. And by allowing women to have self-determination, it does threaten that traditional dynamic. And I think that's totally. Yeah, yeah, because there are so many male legislators as well. I, I right. think that that does bleed through to uh, legislation. You know, I think that's an incredible point, because although theories about population have changed, I think the nuclear family structure is still an incredibly important is incredibly important for maintaining capitalism so yeah that's a great point on a different note back to the tax bill yes. um, <laughs> yeah sorry for that digression <laughs> i was like thought experiment <laughs> <laughs> here for it make it happen Colin. <laughs> there is written into the tax bill um 25 billion dollars in cuts to medicare which in and of itself is like a huge problem but in addition to that the bill would also repeal the affordable care act's individual mandate which is like the thing that incentivizes everyone to have insurance which in turn keeps costs down for people with really awful health problems or people in high-risk groups like old people and No mandate means premiums rise, and in essence, it's estimated that that's going to lead to 13 to 20 million people kicked off their health insurance. Um, And we've we've been through this before. If this sounds like deja vu, that's because we're like right back where we were this summer. Susan Collins, who's one of the so-called moderate Republicans, she's from Maine, (laughs) says that she's only supporting the bill because the administration is promising to follow this up with another bill that'll mitigate the damage from this particular aspect of it um, and help keep people on Obamacare. (laughs) So, uh, like, who wants to take a bet with me on whether that ever happens? It will never happen. I'm not betting betting on that shit. 
I am too yeah, poor and I will always be too poor to bet on yes. that. <laughs> yes. Uh, the tax uh, bill would also cut education funding and mortgage de- deductions that middle and working class families rely on. Seriously, it gets rid of deductions for charitable donations, deductions for interest on mortgages, deductions for school supplies that teachers pay out of pocket. Which is fucked. Fucked. Yeah, especially because it's taking away funding for schools. So teachers are going to be more and more likely to have to pay that kind of shit, pay for that kind of shit. Takes away deductions for medical expenses and deductions for interest on student loans. Basically all things that poor people use to make deductions. Right. I mean, it's it's like literally it's class war. The, the plan just overwhelmingly benefits the rich. Donald Trump keeps saying things like, oh, this will hurt me. And all oh, my rich friends are going to be mad at me about this, which like I have to reject. <laughs> I have to reject that on his face because like even without going into any of the detail we've gone into with this episode, like if you just turned on this episode right in the middle right here i feel like we would have to agree that like this doesn't hurt donald trump simply because we know that donald trump has literally never done a selfless thing in his life never and meanwhile like millions of low and middle income families would actually see tax increases under the republican plan workers over age 50 are gonna it's gonna be harder for them to save for retirement it's like it's literally all awful I think yeah. it's also going to make it hard for workers under 50 to save for retirement. Just yeah. throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> True. Yeah. I guess the hope is like maybe something would turn around by <laughs> for us. <laughs> um, it also Do fucks you over. Hear the people say? Sorry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, it fucks over public schooling. The tax bill is also a gift to private and religious schools as well to parents who homeschool. It will let them use special bank accounts previously dedicated to college savings to pay for their children's private educations. In other words, it's a provision that will mostly benefit rich families who can afford to send their kids to private schools. At the same time, the bill kneecaps public school districts from from some of the most effective ways of raising money. Most public schools are funded by state and local taxes. The tax bill removes the deduction for these taxes. Yeah, it's like Ambria said earlier. It's essentially demanding that states, especially high-tax states, respond by lowering their taxes, a move that, as Laura suggests, would just decimate local school budgets. And then you go back to the whole, you know, teachers are already in this, again, program of austerity, being forced Mm -hmm. to buy their own school supplies. P.S., throwing it back to Huey Long, who in the 1930s argued that the government should pay for all school supplies for all children. I mean, it's just, it's it's utterly outrageous, and it's like a totally unveiled attempt at gutting the public school system in America. Right, because what an opportunity we have now, right, when these schools are completely failing and they have no budget and they're maybe closing, you know, to have a charter school that charges tuition but gets some public funding um, that's cheaper to send your kid to than maybe a fully private school. Mm. But you know, you're still going to have to pay for it probably. And if it's the only thing for the only place for your kid to go to school within five or six miles or whatever, that's where you're going to send your kid. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the Medicaid cuts will seriously restrict schools' abilities to provide special education uh, yes. um, because a lot of mental health and speech and physical therapies, as well as a lot of equipment that children in public school special education programs need are heavily funded by, by Medicaid. Uh, So when Medicaid funding is slashed, it fucks over special needs children, which is a special brand of depravity. 
Yeah. And and also, I mean, public schools are required by law to have programs in place to cover everybody in their district. But private schools, while they're not allowed to discriminate on, you know, who gets admitted um, on the basis of like something like special needs, they're also not required to have programs in place to take care of those kinds of students. So it's another way again, of just demolishing any kind of safety net that's in place for people for whom, you know, for whatever reason, the standard education system just doesn't work. Right. Okay, so this tax bill also ravages Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by allowing more oil and gas drilling. So the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, is a 19 million acre reserve, the largest publicly owned nature reserve in the United States and a gem of unspoiled natural beauty that environmentalists have been trying to protect. Drilling and the potential environmental disasters, and by potential, I mean absolutely going to happen as we've already seen with the Keystone and the Dapple pipeline. Like it's all just fucking all always will spill, always will create massive environmental mm. disasters. Might as well say uh, impending environmental disasters right, that it exactly. will bring. Yes. It could it will devastate not just the land, but the indigenous communities that rely on it as well. Republicans have gotten around Democratic opposition to drilling in Anwar by tying a measure allowing it to the budget process used to approve this tax bill. With the passage of the tax bill came the approval of Anwar drilling. At the same time, the tax bill creates financial incentives for reliance on fossil fuels and creates costs for investing in clean energy, even though clean energy technologies have helped create hundreds of thousands of jobs. In other words, the GOP plan is bad for the economy and the environment because they want to send a bizarre social message to their base that they don't care about the environment and will return us to a day when coal jobs were plentiful, which is at this point an impossibility and obviously a terrible idea. Can I also just add here that there are actually many times, I think it's like four times more graduate students in this country right now than there are coal miners, a point which we will get back to in a moment. Yes. Mm. This tax bill also lets religious groups be both tax-exempt and politically meddling. So as it stands, religious organizations like churches are exempt from taxation. But one key to that exemption is that these groups, like tax-exempt nonprofits, can't endorse candidates or use their pulpits to push partisan electoral politics. They can, of course, have a stance on a particular issue and encourage civic participation generally, Catholic priests can preach against abortion. Evangelical pastors can say marriage should be between a man and a woman and other God garbage. I don't know. Anyone can say whatever, but your minister can't take to the pulpit on Sunday to tell everyone that he should cast their vote. He or she should cast their vote for Donald Trump or risk eternal damnation. If religious individuals want to advocate for candidates, they are free to do that. But religious institutions that enjoy a near total exemption from paying taxes can't tell you who you should vote for. Or at least they couldn't. The House version of the tax bill gets rid of the longstanding amendment barring these institutions from political activism. This could be a bargaining chip in the reconciliation process with the Senate version of the bill. If removing the bar on political activism at church goes into the final version, more politics may be coming to a church or synagogue or mosque or temple near you. Yeah. 
<laughs> really much of a nightmare. And then finally, there's a fucking tuition waiver. God uh, damn it. I, yeah. The nerds gonna... did heave a sigh. So, <laughs> yeah, so we've, I mean, we've already, we've touched upon the idea a little bit of, like, the ways that this is going to demolish primary public education and secondary public education, but it's also going to demolish, like, post-secondary education. The bill is already very unfriendly towards debt forgiveness of virtually any kind. So this is not specifically the grad student tuition stuff, but it's related, I think. So the two versions are different, but, you know, there's a proposal to get rid of debt forgiveness for student loans if you take on certain service jobs, which encourages people to go into like public sector work after college or law school and that the government will help take care of their loans. In general, there's stuff, a lot of, just a lot of stuff in there, like pretty much any way that you can think of to remove the sort of stepping stones that allow poor people to get to college. The Republicans are kind of in there like picking them up and tossing them away with these bills. The one that we were gonna go into detail a little bit about here now is the tuition waiver, which has been getting a lot of attention actually more than I expected. But basically the way that it works is like, if you're in a PhD program, usually you get a tuition waiver, which is like just sort of a bullshit thing to begin with. It's meaningless. Like. I am not taking class. I'm in a PhD program, but I'm not taking classes this semester because I finished all my classes. I'm working on my dissertation, but I'm still like Columbia is still giving me a tuition waiver. Like for what? Again, I don't know. Whatever. But my tuition waiver is like $50,000, right? Columbia is actually paying me about $30,000 every year. And that stipend is for the research that I'm producing for the university and for the semesters where I'm teaching. It's for my teaching labor. And this is pretty standard sort of across disciplines. The amount of money that you get paid varies wildly between STEM and non-STEM fields, and also based on whether you go to a private university or a public university. Regardless, um, I never see that $50,000. I get just the the $30,000 dispersed over the course of the year. However, under this bill, I'm going to be taxed as though I'm making straight income of 80K a year. To add to that, my tax base is in New York, which is like a high tax state. It's also on pure income, you know, it's not coming from investments or capital gains or anything like that. This is the kind of income that's taxed more than any other kind of income. So what this means is, is that for people in my position, we're going to be taxed um, at this much higher rate that will essentially end with us giving up about $14,000 a year in state and local taxes and federal state local and federal taxes so just to do the math for everybody that means graduate students at columbia again just as an example will be making after taxes sixteen thousand dollars a year our rent even in like columbia this is a whole other issue but they own like literally half of the upper west side like just a mega landlord situation in addition to being a quote-unquote university slash hedge fund and they lease those apartments out to grad students and they are below market value even though market value is you know inflated because columbia has gone and bought all this stuff up but even just renting the cheapest apartment you could get from columbia at the rates that they're available now would cost you more than sixteen thousand dollars over the course of the year so 
what this means is that grad students will not even be making enough in a, you know, in a, in a city like New York, which is ridiculously expensive, but in other places too, not making enough even to pay their rent for the whole year, let alone mm-hmm. eat. And we're supposed to be, you know, teaching the children of, of the people who are passing these, these tax bills. And it's, it's outrageous. It's, you know, inhuman. But on top of that, it also means that it's going to be, academia is going to be incredibly homogenized because so few people are going to be able to afford it. I mean, you're basically saying that, you know, for the next five to seven years, I am going to make negative money and you have to have somebody who's going to take care of you. Right. And so you have to come from a wealthy background or you have to have a partner who's, you know, making enough money to take care of both of you, essentially. Mm-hmm. But when we talked about we had a women in col- of co- women of color in academia episode recently, and a lot of the issues that we talked about dovetail with anybody who's, you know, a first generation student or a student from a low income background, all of those people are going to have you know, this opportunity totally stripped away and it sucks for them, but it also sucks for us because, you know, we heard from people like Liz and Yvonne and Nadira about the kind of work that they're doing and how groundbreaking it is because for so long with just like wealthy white men in academia, people weren't even asking the kinds of questions that mattered to, you know, the vast majority of the population. And so like everybody loses when, you know, this is the path that we're taking. It's just, it's crazy. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. Okay, so what can we do about it? Technically, this shit won't become active until 2019. So if we vote all the Republicans out of office in 2018 and hold all the Dems by the balls, we could have them repeal this bill. I don't I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, like, hopeful about that. I think getting out in the streets and, like, really making clear how unacceptable this is, like may be helpful. I think we definitely need to send a message to Democrats to like stand the hell up and do something, especially if they regain control of one of the houses of Congress in next year's election. Um, As Laura said, I'm not like real enthused about the Democrats, but I will say, I don't know, there's been a lot of debate on the left about the efficacy of electoral politics. I'm, you know, taking a conveniently middle of the road approach and saying here that uh, diversity of tactics is always good. And I'm definitely encouraged to see all the primary challengers that are throwing their hats in the ring across the country looking to unseat people yes. like Nancy Pelosi or to take over the chair that Trent Fr- Franks is vacating after this whole, like, let me try to inseminate my employees fiasco. I don't oh know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I saw this tweet that was like, you can't even say to a woman anymore, good morning, may I utilize your womb? <laughs> anyway, I have the answers about what to do full communism and free abortion on demand without apology yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, seriously though you know i believe this empire cannot stand they're stealing everything mm-hmm. that they can in this moment and it's obviously not sustainable i mean sure there's like a culture of misinformation and they they say the bill is one thing while it's another or they say exactly what the bill is and nobody even believes that something that evil could possibly be happening but you know once your life is starting to be materially impacted more and more i i don't know it's it doesn't seem sustainable to me but it is going to have real fucking consequences for the people of this country Um, And what we really need is to position ourselves so that we can actually make demands. I mean, that's something we don't really have right now. 
Um, we're not organized enough. But I do want to say that the changes I've seen this past year do make me hopeful that we can get there. Uh, you know, before Trump got elected, being an activist was even more soul-crushing. Uh, because yeah. <laughs> you really could hardly get anyone to do anything. Like, seriously. Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. I'm just around different people now, but suddenly it seems to me like if you're doing the work of organizing, you can actually get people to show up. So it, it might sound silly or overly simplistic, but, like, just get out there and talk to people. I think we need to be in community with one another, find out what people are working on and offer to help them. You know, show up to that protest. If you feel weird yelling, don't yell. Go stand there. If you're nervous, stand off to the side and just watch. There's lots of other things to do. You know, if screaming in the street isn't your thing, I personally love it. Um, it's the best. You should <laughs> yeah. try. I mean, I would say I would say at least try it once because it's pretty cathartic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like Kellen said, there's a diversity of tactics. Form a block club. Figure out what issues people in your immediate environment are having. Join the DSA. Uh, yep. Help us keep making it better if you yes. don't want to join the DSA. There's lots of stuff to do. And mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm just sort of like an overly optimistic person, but I'm like, we just need to like get to know one another and like yes. organize and build our networks and have people that we can call on in times of crisis because we're going to need each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a big thing that we need to do is to stop holding out hope for bipartisanship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if the GOP wants anything other than, you know, the best interests of its leadership and its donors at this point, I'm, too tired and too anxious about like my own survival to try and figure out what it is so i (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah thank you like the orson wells citizen kane clap over here yeah (laughs) i like i am willing to look for the best in everyone but when people are i mean threatening my life and the lives of people I love and the lives of people I don't know, but who are in a similar position to me or who are slightly better off than I am or who are way worse off than I am. When people are threatening our actual lives, I don't owe them the duty to look for their humanity. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's exhausting. Absolutely. I I give you permission for that. Not that you need it. Thank you. Yeah, we don't. We don't. But we talked about permission in one of an earlier message, an earlier episode, (laughs) and I feel like it's helpful sometimes. If you are in the DSA or if you are a leftist, then I strongly recommend running for office. If you are running for office and you need a little bit of a boost on your, you know, your campaign and your platform, reach out to us. Uh, I personally will, you know, give you a signal boost on my Twitter page. We may, you know, boost your platform on the season of the bitch page we just need people who are progressive um and who aren't willing to just bow down to you know bipartisanship to actually try and make change so i'm willing to amplify some voices there yeah absolutely all right guys well it's been uh i don't want to say fun but it's it's been as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're also on Facebook. Please email us your music if you're a musician, um, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Also, if you just have anything you want to like say to us, sometimes people just email us and they're like, hey, wanted to say this thing to you. And we're like, hey, thanks. That was really nice. We'll share it in our <laughs> Slack if it's really encouraging. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. 
rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Listen to our earlier episodes if you're just joining us more recently. And tell your friends because, you know, we think you're cool. And if you have friends, they probably think that you're cool. And maybe we can all think you're cool together. Cool. Donate we have merch. Yep, merch. Yes. We have merch. And there's going to be more merch coming down the pipes for solstice winter solstice so keep an eye out for that and yeah donate to patreon you guys are the best you're the best <laughs> all right guys all right bye bye, bye. love you love you so Bitch.